<laughs> All right, welcome to episode 73 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Kate Harvey. She's a writer, editor, marketer, brand strategist, helps with people's development, both online, offline. She's a graduate of law school. She's a startup founder, advocate for survivors of all kinds of trauma. Her book is called Believe It and Behave It, How to Restart, Reset, and Reframe Your Life. And uh, w- welcome, Katie. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Leon. We are all a little bit extra shiny today because of, what was it, two minutes, 37 seconds from Joe Biden's talk last night? It wasn't that long. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so definitely we're going to, I think we're going to definitely focus on the election on this episode too. Um, so before we begin, you know, for our audience, a lot of what we talk about on this show has related sorry, is related to mental health and is obviously related to sort of different ways of coping with sort of different struggles and different tragedies that people go through in life. And so what makes Kate's story so amazing is that she actually had a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. And so um, when kind of when Audrey ended up reaching out to us, so um, it was uh, obviously Kate's either assistant or publicist, I'm not exactly sure. Um, what intrigued us so much about it was because of the, here was this real person who went through this really difficult thing that I would say probably 99% of us can't imagine. And she came out of it. And she she wrote a book about it and she wrote about all of the things and the experiences that she went through and she wrote about all of the sort of tools that she used to help her overcome it and so we got to talk to kate obviously before the show started and to me it's really amazing that you are the person you are after this thing because i mean a lot i, I don't know if a lot of people but i would say most people at least would have wanted to have given up after something like that so can you tell us a little bit about the brain injury kind of like what happened before it how did it happen and how you ended up coping with it sure so long story short uh, I had been laid off from a job the week before I went to Brooklyn, um, met up with a friend, and we were walking uh, in Brooklyn to my then hairstylist's house, who, like most stylists, you know, gives you a deal when you come to their place and not the salon. And we're nearing up to Gravesend Cemetery, so I'm told, in Brooklyn. And it was windy, early February 2009, and I'm all about hats, okay? Hats always fit. And that's always a really easy way to, you know, amp your style. And the wind blew my hat off my head. I stepped back into the crosswalk to pick up my hat and an ambulance was coming the other direction and it hit me. And so I went into, I went into a coma nearly immediately and was in a coma for two and a half weeks. There was concern I wouldn't come out of the coma. And to your point, Leanne, I had suffered what's called a traumatic brain injury. And after several different surgeries at hospital in Brooklyn, then I was sent to, to Mount Sinai in Manhattan, where I resided until late April that year. And the day before I was to be released from the hospital, I brought in for kind of um, like the wrap up meeting that you have, you know, when you host a conference or an event at a resort or hotel, they kind of tie it all up with you. Well, it does that in hospitals too. And I learned in that meeting that by New York law, I, could not live by myself in my apartment because of the nature of the injury I had suffered. So where would I live? And happily, I learned from the doctor that day that my parents had said I could live at their house, who at this point lived in Ohio in a house that I had visited but never lived in. So that's a humbling thing to happen to you when you're in your early 30s. And what's your option? You go with it. So that was a shock and awe that I wasn't expecting. Didn't hurt me that much though, because I barely had a memory in my head. 
and you know, uh, brain injury, and as people that are familiar with professional football and CTE can attest, their um, trauma to the brain will affect the person in any number of ways. Right, even and, personality. Pardon? Even personality. Yeah, I'm. I would imagine that personality is probably one of the things most affected, because yeah. any any sort of TBI will affect how you communicate, and how you communicate is a big part of who you are. So for nearly five months, I lived at my parents' house in Ohio and began the rebuilding in what I call the academic way. You know, went to uh, an osteopathist and um, uh, brain recovery within um, the neuropsychology realm where you do things like learn to do the crossword puzzle again and learn to drive again and learn to be in conversation without interrupting someone all the time because you didn't quite understand what they were saying. And things like getting comfortable with talking with people that you once knew very well. And all you know about them now is their name and the original context by which you knew them. Things like learning how to scramble eggs again uh, what won the best picture Oscar in 1972? Because that was a thing, you know, movies and trivia and et cetera. And to your earlier question, ultimately, in terms of recovery for real, you have to decide that you're worth it, yeah. that you're worth the disappointing, embarrassing, humbling, oh my God, I can't believe this is real experiences that will come up privately and publicly because if you don't go through them you won't get better right when you were experiencing the short-term memory loss how what was the process like of kind of getting back your memory and then as you're sort of you know starting to um develop that memory i mean i could imagine yeah you're going through certain experiences with people where you're like um you know, maybe how, how do I know you or and trying to like rebuild relationships? Like what's that, uh, what was that like for you uh, from your side of things? As obvious as it sounds, the pack for me was repetition. And as much as I'd learned when I was starting out in the business world, when you meet someone, use their name three times in the conversation and it helps imprint it. And so I did some of that. I found myself being intentionally better at observing what was happening, not only because I didn't really know what to say, also because to your point, Alan, I needed to put back together who we were to each other, who I was in the context of the relationship, of the experience, and I became so dedicated to paying attention that I started saying a couple of years ago, the only thing I'm always doing, the only thing I do as much as, what is it, what did I say? Uh, the only thing I'm always doing besides paying bills is attention. Mm -hmm. Because in being, in being observant, I could be present in the space without having to contribute something. And also quietly, silently, you know, mad scientist style, put it back together. Okay, so that person went to law school with me and we used to do this and now they're married and we were agency here 
and now they're dating so-and-so and they would talk and I would hear it and I would kind of almost uh, put a treatment together, you know, for a movie or something. And I came to learn that when we write things down versus typing them, it imprints the knowledge stronger in the mind than typing it. So as people would not mock me, but wonder why I always had a notebook with me or a journal with me or a calendar with me and not just use Evernote. You know, I just would say, oh, I like it. I've been doing it since college. And that was partially true. The other thing was I remembered it better when I wrote it down. And I, I used the word earlier. Um, I, I did my best to choose to feel humbled by what all this going on and not self-hating because I did live there and, you know, disappointed only with myself because, you know, as much as I appreciated people saying, it's such a miracle you're here. And you, did you know that we thought you were gonna die? And no, I, I appreciate they say it. At the same time, there were moments where I felt like, do you know how much responsibility that puts on me to, to show up and really be good and not just be here? Not that I ever, and honestly, honest to God, I have never said that out loud. So shouts to you guys for giving me the space to say it. Absolutely. And so the thing that kind of struck with me was the fact that you said that you had, um, or you developed the ability to just be there or to just be present. I think a lot of us, especially like with me and kind of my sessions or the start of, um, I think even us like on our podcast, right? I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to like be entertaining and to always be on and to always have something insightful and engaging and important to say. So I know from my perspective, and I'm sure you feel this too, like when we talk to guests, right? We always feel like, oh, we have to have like these great questions for our guests. We have to make sure that it's worth their time. And so for you, you kind of, it seems like you got to this point where at least for that moment, you were able to accept yourself as you were and to say that, okay, maybe I don't necessarily have anything to, in particular to contribute to like this particular, let's say engagement or event or whatever, but that's okay. Because it seems like maybe all of the people around me are just okay with me being me without me having to like be on or to be someone else. Yeah. It is a blessing and a curse that and I'm going to use finger quotes because I think it's a finger quotable term, social media, because what is social about it, honestly? Right. That social media has given everyone the option to be their own publicist mm -hmm. and also to run a loop all the time about themselves. This is wonderful in its presence and it's somewhat destructive where it comes to legitimate, heartfelt, meaningful communication. It also puts a significant amount of pressure on those of us that communicate for businesses for work because the whole new and shiny thing isn't always possible. Something launches, something premieres, it's good. And it's going to be around for three weeks, a month, whatever. And it won't be new and shiny except to the people that go to experience it for the first time. So to your point, Leon, about the pressure we have on ourselves, that's huge. I won't say I got over it and where I came to accept better and kind of reclaim who I was, I finally decided I chose to recognize that I'd survived an accident that was initially thought to have killed me. And it can't have been only because the medical team 
and the friends and family that said prayers and were there and brought flowers and food and everything, it couldn't only be because of them. And it couldn't only be because I was taking up space in the world and it wasn't my time yet. So once I accepted that I was here, I knew there had to be reasons that I was around. And so I asked myself to myself, what fueled me? What was keeping me going? And the unacceptable answers were making money, seeing my name in a byline, titles that were impressive, social likes, not acceptable. And so I came to determine if it's not the same as what has me here, what fueled me? And that was fairly easy, opportunity, recognition and gratitude. And I can share each what, what each of those mean if you would like me to, but I don't have to if you want me to. No, please. Cool. Opportunity. I get to experience, witness, advocate, cook, write, hear, promote, and on and on and on. And I have Regina Brett, the author of God Never Blinks and the host of um, an amazing radio show in um, Ohio, Illinois, and Pennsylvania for the notion of getting to. I got to, and I get to. And if I was gonna survive this thing 11 years ago, every day gives me a shot at something. That's opportunity. Recognition, to perceive things that exist that are true and allowing me to share them, to celebrate them, to experience them. And when appropriate, tell people about them and help and support the people that make them and do them. I mean, for me to take what I recognize and build on it, for me, that's very meaningful. And hopefully for the clients and the artists and the nonprofits, it is too. Gratitude. That's my mother load. I mean, as you guys know, I'm an expressive, loquacious, demonstrative girl. And one of the things to which I'm truly dedicated is expressing how grateful I am for the people, the experiences, and the things that happen in my life. And that all keeps me going. And that also somewhat protects me, bolsters me against the complete crazy that is the United States of America. And definitely since early March of this year, the entire world. Out of curiosity, would you say that, um, and, and feel free to you know not answer this, but- Yeah, you're fine. Do you feel like, um, you had to reach like a certain level of uh, pain or suffering to choose to to go this other way to, to learn, you know, uh, opportunity to learn recognition to learn uh, compassion. Do you feel like you, you reach some kind of pain point and then you're like, I can't live like that. So I have to go another way. Or was it something else for you that kind of motivated you? That's a good question. So Trauma is trauma. And Brene Brown said that, so I don't claim it. Trauma is trauma. And what I came to learn, to answer your question, Alan, is the trauma that people speak to and about mostly is physical harm. You got hurt physically. Uh, someone broke up with you when you were sad about it. Uh, you went bankrupt something tangible, something somehow physical that affected a person's body. And they're, it's, it's harmed them and they need to rebuild. There's also another form of trauma, 
And that is something that hurts us mentally, emotionally, psychologically. And I chose to make myself be someone who had suffered trauma, but was not going to be trauma. It happened. What could I learn from it? How could, for the sake of other people, could I make it teachable? Because as a strategist, you know, kind of un undoing the puzzle pieces and putting them back together in a more effective, more beautiful, more interesting way, that's the only way I could conceive of it. Because I knew that things would never be what they had been. That was finished. So with the, with the chance to be around now, what could I do? So even in small ways, I could be happier, wiser, kinder, clearer. And to get there, the only way I could do that was by reframing what happened. So yes, it happened. It sucked. I didn't seek it. I didn't want it to happen. And then what? Would I go through my life always being the girl that was picking up her hat in the street and got hit by an ambulance? Once you laugh off the irony of that, then what? Then what? What could there be? And believing that things happen for us, not to us, here was my chance to take it, smush it like Plato style and rebuild it and thus rebuild me. I mean, I call it out in the title of my book, Believe It and Behave It, because we don't believe, if we don't believe it, we can't do it. All of the whole act as if, and you know, thank you, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and all that. It's not real. If you don't really think that you're gonna make the best three layer chocolate cake that your friends have ever tasted, you're not gonna make a good cake. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you have like Scharfenberger chocolate and you know, all the skills of the French Culinary Institute people, you're not gonna do it. So to, to kind of tell my mind and tell my heart, this is what's possible and you will do it, you can do it. I think ultimately I came to realize that this is a conversation I had with a friend a couple months ago. Everyone is capable of doing stuff, whether it's get the PhD, you know, learn to drive stick shift, you know, make nice with your partner's in-laws who don't really like you. They are capable of doing it. They can do it. Mm -hmm. And what they must decide is, are they willing to do it? Do they have the energy, the vulnerability, the heart, the time to say, you know what, hunker down and make it happen. That is where I think we run into a lot of challenges as grownups. Yeah, absolutely. Capable, yes. Willing, no. You have to both. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people struggle with sort of accepting what, let's say, their abilities or their capacities are. Um, a lot of times it's like, you know, uh, we may talk about like compliments, right? And how people might struggle with accepting compliments. And the idea is usually like what happens when you do, right? It's like if you're kind of in the background and you're saying, no, 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 I'm not that thing. It's much safer there, right? Because if you're not that thing, then there's nothing to lose. But then if you are that thing and if you have the ability to become, I don't know, particularly, let's say, in particular, an entrepreneur, or you have the ability to even be a good friend, right? Because some people even run away from friendships. What does that mean, right? That means that you have to actually now put yourself out there. So it's like, if you believe it and behave it, now you can lose it. So um, so I guess, Kate, for you, what would you say to people who do have that fear of accepting like their potential and who kind of shriek or run away from it? If, I'm, if, I, um, if I can learn from them why they are running, running from it, um, that will certainly make the conversation, I think, a little faster, not a lot faster. Where I think, to your question, Leon, where I think people get stuck is they don't think that they are worth whatever is necessary to make that thing happen. Whether it's the path to fame, the path to profit, path to love. And once you realize and you believe that you're worth the effort, the time, the risk of vulnerability, you'll make it happen. And where people can get into trouble is they block themselves by not identifying that the time necessary is worth it. It's interesting, you know, people that are off, they're always late. I'd, I've not done the research on this, though I'd be fascinated to know if the people that are always late is are things in their life kind of partially done halfway, you know, incomplete because they are not really thinking about how important it is to be on time for something mm-hmm. for someone. I don't know. Yep. A challenge that could come up for people as that you were discussing Leon is noise, sounding out the noise. I mean, this is really difficult, particularly, you know, where social media is nonstop with information, whether it's meaningful or distracting. When we lower the volume on what's around us, which is easier said than done, without question, it's like panning for gold because what warrants our time, our effort, our risk, our heart, our skills comes to the surface. And sometimes this is as easy as taking a hiatus from social, from people, from deciding, you know, I really don't like that kind of almond milk, so I'm gonna go back to dairy. That's a silly example. But I think that that uh, worth, worth, worthiness and noise, I think those are two of the, um, those are the two of the hurdles that I think come up. Does that make sense? Yeah. And how did you get to that place where you found like, let's say where you were obviously sort of incapacitated for, you know, whatever amount of time. And then you actually found that still regardless, you know, again, going back to contribution, that even though I'm not, you know, let's say an active member of whatever particular circle or community I'm in, that I'm still important. So as obvious as it may sound, I mean, I went old school. (laughs) I took it back to when the simplest seemingly most obvious thing worked. And that for me 
came up in October 1999 when the Ohio bar exam results were released and I failed it. Mm -hmm. And happily, none of my classmates, none of my friends failed, which was great because that night we had a Halloween party somewhere in downtown Cleveland and you know everyone was going. And the notion was we're going to have the party on the bar exam results announcement day so everyone can raise a glass and celebrate. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting on, I'm getting my, I'm getting costume because I'm not going to not go and celebrate my friends and, you know, kind of do my, start to wrap my head around now what? Mm-hmm. And I went and, you know, kind of acting the whole way through. And the next day I said, okay, clearly I'm probably not going to be an attorney. So what, what do I do? And so I told a friend that I was looking for work, shook the trees, and I ended up in the digital practice of an ad agency. And that all came to me because I was honest about who I was, what I wanted to do, and I found the courage to ask for help. And so that's what I did because my biggest challenge publicly in my post, post-medical recovery during my personal recovery, which I think is from the rest of my life, is, um, okay, what worked? What has worked in the past? And while it was more difficult, you know, after the brain injury, particularly if not exclusively because I doubted myself hard, in the 21 years since I'd flipped the script work-wise, you know, I was a different person, but the fact of the matter was that had worked. So I volunteered like it was my job. And when I encountered people who were doing remarkable things, I offered to work with them or for them. And that's how I ended up supporting the last Misfit Con in Fargo, uh, how I ended up where, um, how I ended up working in communications and strategy for the Vanderbilt Republic and now Midheaven Network and building on my outreach after the Kickstarter didn't happen to the Universal Hip Hop Museum. And it's why I am the contributing writer there. So I broke it down. I went back to what had worked in 1999. Mm-hmm. And how were you able to do that? Like to overcome failing the bar exam? Like what sort of self-talk did you use? Or what sort of, I guess, like mental or emotional tools were helpful? So that sounds devastating. Well, at the time it was because I had gone against probably my better instinct by going to law school. And so now that I had learned all of that, or I thought I did, I said to myself, okay, what did you get from this three years of experience besides the keen knowledge that a lot of the laws in the United States of America are as ass backwards as anything could be? And the social style, the pattern required to be successful in this world is not who I am as a person. What I learned was how to advocate, how to research, how to analyze and how to write. So where could those tactics, where could those skills be applied? Communications, and that's how I ended up in advertising. And so as as difficult as it was, because my mother's father was an attorney, my father's an attorney. You know, I was imbued to kind of keep up the thing. It's where I learned actually in 1999, when I was 23, 
that the linear life is not necessarily for all of us. And by the linear life, I mean, you're born, you go to school, you go to school, maybe you serve in the military, meet someone, marry them, you have children, and it goes like this, fairly straight line. And if you're me, and a lot of people, you get detoured, or roundabout, or backwards, or accident. And then what? Clearly, what you were doing, you know, isn't necessarily um, doable again, since you kind of are here and you're not here. So what do you do? You hunker down and you figure it out. And you embrace the notion that it does not need to be this to this to this to this right. in that order, in that time frame. And I'm grateful that I got the job first in consultancy at the agency that started in early December and the bar results came down late October. So it was really only about six weeks of WTF. In the meantime, I had, I, I had you know, two pads going. I had done my second summer at a law firm in DC. I'd made some, I met some people there. I did some outreach. I was hoping to get a job at one of the congressman's offices. I had, was about to go into um, a shared apartment with, I think they were either at Georgetown or GW. And so I got the job offer, I think two or three days before I was moving to DC. And I felt badly, you know, here I'd promised to be these girls roommate. And so I paid them the first months of the rent. My father said to me, why are you doing that? I said, I don't know, because finding roommates hard. And he said, you didn't have to do that. And I said, well, my integrity said I needed to. Now, I, not that I ever heard from those girls again. And my father kind of smiled and shook his head. And I'm sure he was thinking to himself, those girls are going to go to the nail salon with that money. They're not going to use it for the rent. <laughs> Whether he was right or not, it felt right to close that door gracefully and kindly because I was going to go back to New York right. where I'd gone to college, where I was born and start new. That's what it was. Yeah, and Can I answer so your question? Does that really answer yeah. your question? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Really. yeah to, to a good extent. <laughs> so and then you, I really love that you focus heavily on character because from what I kind of know about just uh, like, let's say self-esteem or overcoming kind of trauma or just even let me see how I can phrase this, or even just like for people who don't necessarily go through trauma, but then they kind of figuring out or trying to figure out a way to kind of feel good about themselves. I mean, this goes back to Stoic philosophy and like Massimo and Ryan Holiday, right? The idea is that pretty much your character is like the person that you are and the person that you see yourself as. And so I know for a lot of people, and obviously you, you, you yourself included, Kate, is that when you look at character, right? Or when you look at rebuilding kind of, let's say your life, uh, you know, against the trauma, that you're looking to character, right? And you're asking yourself, okay, who can I become you know after this right or who can i even become because of this so my question would be to you in terms of rebuilding your life and in terms of becoming the person you are today how i guess how important was character building to you right i mean because it seems like character building was important to you pretty much from the get-go or at least from a very long time ago but how important was it to you to rebuild yourself right to say like okay even though this terrible thing happened to me right it's going to be okay because this is the person i'm going to become or at least this is the person i'm going to still be The word integrity is used so rarely in the US and it's applied even less, which is a mystery to me, frankly, but you know, whatever. Hopefully come late January, we'll see a flip on that. 
insofar as my character and the truest I could be rooted in kindness and respect and empathy for, you know, compassion for people. It's always who I'd been. And so if I knew anything, I knew that. And fundamentally, that helped me to be able to ask for help and not see it as a weakness, to recognize it as a step forward. Because honestly, how many remarkable things have been done solo? Very few, very few. The notion that I could flip failure, which I'd done in 99 after the bar exam, that I had gone on to do in a couple of personal relationships, you know, flipped for my own benefit, not because, you know, we were going to like live the soap opera married life. Um, what I notice about people who are of really strong character is they're patient with themselves. And they acknowledge that it will take a little while for what they're building, what they're creating, what they're correcting right. to take place. They say this in my book, things don't happen on time, they happen in time. In the last few months, I have embraced one of my favorite fables by Aesop <laughs> about the tortoise and the hare. And it's tortoise over hare every <laughs> time, every single time. Right. When things happen quickly, they tend not to last or they tend not to be very good. Yep. And I'm not sure if this is a character point, but the hum human mind will face when something truly traumatic and upsetting and dangerous comes up, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. But there's beyond fight or flight. There's dealing with it. When you can't leave, when you can't escape, when you can't combat, what's left? You start new. And you know that after the battle, after the rabbit hole, after the darkness, there's you everything you believe and everything you know you can do. I don't know if that's really character. I think it is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because making the choice or even just knowing that you have to endure, right? And that change is incremental, like real change, right? Like you said, with the tortoise and the hare and having a sort of faith that, you know, if, if you stay with the process of trying to change, you change not even 1% every day, let's say 0.1% every single day, you, you try to do something new, you try to uh, build a new habit, you try to, um, you know, uh, build a skill, that 0.1% change maybe in one day, or even a week's time or a month's time doesn't look like much. But after a year, it's, it would be a huge, like a huge difference, right? Enormous. And yeah, and it, it's, it's really important to to believe that you can that you can change, right? I think that's actually the most important thing, because um, I, I want to say this earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt. But uh, it's interesting, like how our mind works. When you make a choice to believe something wholeheartedly, your mind looks for evidence of that belief, and that's actually very interesting because when you know something like that, not everyone knows that, but when you know that that's interesting what you can, what are the possibilities for you and what you can do moving forward? Because 
I'm sure I'm sure in your experience, like when you made the choice to believe that you're going to recover, that you're going to rebuild uh, your your memory, your relationships, uh, be better, you know, or be as best as, as you can. Right. I mean, imagine somebody else who was in your shoes who didn't make that choice. Right. Like what would their life be like? And then versus like how you chose to live yours. And I think that's a very important aspect, the belief aspect. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and then also I would kind of add on to that, that don't for UK care, patience was really important. So when we're conceptualizing kind of the whole notion of post-traumatic growth, right, one of the kind of important aspects of it, or I, I guess for at least from my understanding of it, is one of the most important aspects is that people really learn patience. And like for the most part, obviously, because we're kind of like, you know, kind of, uh, let's say tied into the hustle and bustle of everyday life. For us, a lot of times, like we expect, you know, let's say, I don't know, for even podcasts, like we expect growth, like, you know, exponential growth quickly. And for, I'm assuming for you and your recovery, right? Patience was really important to you. You kind of had to learn that, you know, here's this thing that's really like difficult. And um, according to my prognosis, it's going to be something that's going to last for a pretty long time. It's not something that's going to, let's say, a recovery that's going to occur overnight. So I think for a lot of people who are struggling with anything, you know, whether we're talking about mental health, whether we're talking about, let's say, any kind of physical traumas or ailments, one of the most, if not the most difficult aspect of it is actually being patient with it and sort of going through the recovery period. And so, my thinking is for you, again, going back to the concept of sort of growth, right? For you, it's really impressive to see that you were able to obviously not only overcome it, but to develop the level of patience that you have. Because I got to say, I struggle with it all the time. And I know me and him, have, yeah, he knows. We have, <laughs> him and I have had so many conversations about this, about like, why isn't our podcast doing better? Um, how come we're not getting more views on this platform, but we're getting reasonable views on this platform? Why are we getting more likes here, right? And then for me, it's like, I always, I'm always like, you know, kind of like on the next step. I'm like, okay, next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. And so I guess my question would be for you, if like, let's say if you develop that sense of patience, right, does that also allow you to kind of celebrate the little moments toward the little victories as well? So, dude, y'all gospel. And if Ryan Holiday isn't listening to this, we'll find out again. <laughs> he has his personal email address on the newsletter for the um, Stoic books and all the stuff. So yeah, we're going to make that happen. <laughs> that would be dope. Trust. Um, <laughs> Leon, your point's your point's a good one. I'll say this. I personally find it much easier to be patient with others than to be patient with myself. Mm-hmm. Anyone that says otherwise is not telling the truth. Okay. If they're impatient with the people, then they're just impatient by nature. And they can just you know try they best not try to hang out for themselves. For me, being cognizant of the the restart and how long it would take was a necessity. Were I to compare myself to who I was when I was 18, 24, 27, 31, you know, with this accolade, this, this experience, this great, um, you know, acknowledgement, this date that was really fun and what, what it led to whatever, I mean, I was, when I would do that, I would find myself in nothing but a pool of regret and, you know, really unfortunate self-hatred. And this is real. There's an amazing band based out of Cincinnati called Over the Rhine, Linford and Karen. You should listen to these guys because they're amazing. They were at La Poisson Rouge doing a show and I'd seen them a few times before. 
And as I left, I went out the back door and went past where their merch table was. And so I bought some, um, bought a, bought something for someone and what was looking at the t-shirts. And one of the t-shirts said, comparison is the thief of joy. And I nearly fell down and I bought it. And as I was heading home, I looked up on my phone who said that, Teddy Roosevelt. So this notion, comparison is the thief of joy was in every way a bulwark for the last four or five years of my life because it was not only comparison to other people in the industry, comparison to the people in recovery, other people in programming, the comparison to me, who I was, when I was thinner, when I was smarter, when I was not injured, you know, when I was making whatever money, when I was, you know, writing this or whatever. And it, 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 it's true to hold myself against me and not see, okay, what can be learned here? What can be celebrated? And what can we do next? I was only made really sad, really devastated, really disappointed. So I had to be patient. As far as, you know, deciding that what we are doing as long as it may take is worth it, I come to a couple of things, and this may be rooted in me being a strategist. I mean, one of the ways strategy is defined literally is a plan for obtaining a specific goal or result. Now, it would be wonderful if it said that happens overnight or it happens in two weeks. What I've come to realize is the decisions made about this are as much rooted in how we feel as what we think. And so as someone who, you know, wrote a book and did not expect her book to be on Oprah's book club or to be, you know, showing up on the front tables of Barnes and Noble, I do want people to read it, not because I think it's the last thing I'll ever do to make money. I would like people to read it because there's value in what's there because I wanted to make trauma teachable with ease because it wasn't that for me. And I'd be darn crazy if I wanted people to do a repeat of what I experienced. That's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, where I land here, I guess, is, uh, will you guys hear the word agency used a lot these days, mm -hmm. last year or so, right, agency? Mm -hmm. Agency, at least in my experience, is used so often by women founders and strategists and marketers specifically. Now, in the context of being a woman or being a startup founder or being a an up-leveled uh, maker of support of communications, which you guys are, I mean, I think when we speak to agency, we're talking about exerting influence and power and being the originator, the instigator, not the like old school agency where we hang a shingle and we, you know, make money and et cetera. <laughs> and there's not only space for us in this room of originators, of instigators, of creators, the room needs us. <laughs> and that's true. And we may need to break in there like we're spies, black ops, but we will be in the room where it happens. And thank you, Lin-Manuel Miranda for that one. Okay, one thing that has helped me in my effort to 
be still and be aware of the clock does not run super fast on what I would like to accomplish for the sake of people, for the sake of me. I come to this, everything I want to do, everything I hope to do, everything I intend to do, I'm gonna define it, design it and divine it. And that's by the subtitle of the next book, but define it. What does it mean? How does it look? What will it accomplish? What's its purpose? Design it. How does it feel, look, taste, smell, sound? Divine it. What skills, what spirits, what knowledge do I have? What, what, do, others, what do other people have that can help me create that? Because y'all are divining it, and you just have to remember that. I love that. You know, uh, you honestly, the 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 wisdom, like the way you speak. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, it's obviously you didn't get all this on your own, right? Uh, were there any uh, teachers? I mean, not as an insult. You know what I mean? Like, oh. uh, like I, I I feel like I hear it. I feel <laughs> no it, one would have like taken that as an teacher. insult. No, you, like, for example, you mentioned like Brene Brown earlier. And, so and what's like your that. cliff notes for this? Because we would love to kind of borrow it. And you no, know. oh my god, <laughs> you're funny. You're funny. You're funny. Look. <laughs> While I am um, one of the, I mean, when I um, left advertising and I worked in small business and marketing and sales, my next company job was in sales and development at Sephora US. And so working in corporate training, in adult learning for 11 years in Sephora and different um, brands, I came to appreciate how valuable and necessary it is to always be learning. Mm. What is it always always be selling in Glengarry Glen Ross? No, always be learning. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So for me, those who have presented, provided so much remarkable stuff, Brene Brown in her first book, The Power of Non Um The Power of Vulnerability. Is that what mm. is that what it's called? No. The Gifts of Imperfection. Ay, yay, yay. You think I yeah. Gifts of Imperfection, which my good friend Josh Smerick had directed me to read. Mm -hmm. That book was amazing. Uh, it's no longer offered, I think. Uh, and Chopra Center had an amazing course I did called Synchro Destiny, mm -hmm. which helped me to um, put into words what I was often defending with people being, I don't believe in coincidence. I don't think it's real. I think happen, things happen with intent not maybe when I want them to. Mm -hmm. And they happen when they happen intentionally. And I think there's no random. And when I said this to someone a few years ago, they said, so you think it was on purpose you got hit by a truck? And I said, well, I don't know, purpose, but I'm here now and I'm doing as much good as I can after that. So it was supposed to happen. Now I can't, I'm not, need, I'm not here to convince anybody that it was supposed to happen because there may have been better ways for me to have gotten to a clearer, kinder, more useful place in my life, but whatever, it went down as it did. I had a really good experience in clinical hypnotherapy with Carla Lightfoot. That was very helpful in so far as the real nitty gritty of where I'd come from and to think 
uh, Brian Felchuk, who I recently spoke with on his podcast, his book, Do a Day, um, which I did not come to early enough in my recovery time. I wish in many ways I had because the notion that each day there is a thing we can work on and accomplish, that's very, that's very uh, speaking to, I think, the stoicism that yeah. Ryan Holiday talks about. Right. Um, super, super helpful. Right. Um, and I think the stuff where I learned the most was the consistent, if not constant, can I curse on your show? Sure. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. The Fuck consistent, yeah. <laughs> consistent, thank you. I'm not, I'm, I would, I would, I've learned to ask. The consistent, if not constant fuck ups mm -hmm. that I was making work-wise, socially, and with my family. Because in the aftermath of each of those, some of which could not be repaired, I had no choice but to learn, yeah, maybe don't do that. Or if you wanna do that, pause, step back and ponder. Do you need to do that? Does it need to be said? I went, I think I talk in the book about um, judging versus witnessing. Women, I think are prone to this. You know, how a girl's hair looks, are her shoes wrong? Is her makeup blended properly? Is she fat in those jeans? Whatever. We're really, we're worse, I think, than men, gay and straight and non-binary about that. And I learned how important it is to, if I see something, witness something, hear something that just doesn't seem right, do I need to talk about it? Do I need to have an opinion about it? Probably not. I can witness it and acknowledge it. And that's it. And I think so much of the anger and the hate that is fueling a lot of what goes on in the US is because of that. We have more judgment than we have witnessing. We just don't need it. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah, that reactivity is is really bad. I mean, to be able, uh, we even had, a, I think I forgot what quote I said earlier, something like, so this applies to all people, but the quote goes like this, like uh, the size of the man is the size of his problems, or the size mm -hmm. of the person, the size of their problems. So what are, you know, if you look at your own circle of concerns, I mean, what's important to you, that little thing somebody did on the on the street or some comment on social media or how somebody is dressed or whatever, like if that's your concern, that kind of equates to what the things that you care about. But then like, what's your purpose? What what are the things that you, what's what do you really care about? That usually creates the kind of boundary, the gravity for your personal boundaries, right? right? Like if, if you have this huge purpose that you're trying to accomplish, uh, usually little things don't get at you because you're so focused on getting this big thing done. Yeah. Right. And I think that's very important. And I'm sorry you wanted to. Say well, yeah, actually, I'll, that's I'm glad you said that first, because I want to add on to that. So interestingly, also, I think like we also um, going back to like the issue of control or the, the issue of patience. I think a lot of times, like, you know, like I told you before, that we're kind of uh, we're always or I'm always on the go and I'm always trying to get to the next thing. Um, when it comes to, I think, like sort of accepting that here are these things that I can control and here are these things that I can't. I think from especially kind of, you know, going to um, or talking about what you went through, Kate, I'm pretty 
sure, I mean, obviously I've never been in this situation, but I mean, I can infer that when you were kind of lying in the hospital bed for you, it was really probably difficult to sort of assess that actually not even assess to accept the things that you can and can control. And so, um, you know, we had John Kagan, another author on the show about like three months ago or something. And so he was telling us like when he had a heart attack, he was like incapacitated for whatever period of time. And he said, you know, going back to like the writings of William James, where the things that, that were like really important to him about it is that there was this aspect of James where he said like, look, you know, sometimes even like moving your finger a little bit, right. Or being able to kind of like move your arm or move your hand that in itself is a personal victory. But the way kind of the, our culture is structured is that like, no, no, here are like these like big important victories and here's everything else that doesn't really matter. So I think a lot of times when it comes to sort of, um, well, I don't want to speak on this too much because I don't really have any personal experience of it, but I'll just mention it a bit in passing. When it comes to rehabilitation, I'm assuming that's where people struggle with this idea of like, oh, now I can't live my life, right? Now I have to just like, now because I've regressed, I have to go back and I have to relearn these things that are already givens that I've taken for granted. But then also, then this is an aspect of it that I do understand when it comes to business, right? Um, one of the best pieces of advice that I have ever heard was from Seth, Go oh, Seth Godin, the marketing expert. And he said, you know, where people get trapped in business is that here, like they get trapped in the things that they actually can control, believing that they can. And then they sort of forego focusing on the things that they can control, but that they, oh, I'm sorry, the things that they can control, but that they don't want to, or that they don't want to focus on. So for him, he's like, like, if you're, let's say, I don't know, um, let's say if you are like a, let's say if you're a media strategist, hypothetically, and you're looking for clients, right? Um, he would say, well, you know, a lot of times where people get trapped is that they're focusing on one particular client and trying to convince them, you know, obviously to, you know, to, to form a sort of a, an arrangement with you or whatever. And he said, well, here are these things that you can focus on, right? Like, let's say, you know, developing your website, um, you can focus on maybe gaining certifications or learning more. You can focus on developing partnerships with people who are more interested than, you know, maybe this particular prospective client. But the thing is, a lot of times he says, like, we procrastinate on the things that we can do. And we sort of like, we really kind of zero in on the things that we can't or the things that are like roadblocks to us. So what I love about the notion of patience is that you kind of understand that here, here's this thing that I might have to wait on, but that's okay, because this isn't the only thing that I have going for me. Me, right. It's like, even though the other things may not be sort of that, let's say intrinsically rewarding, like, I don't know, you know, feeling good or accomplished about building, building a website or about you like, you know, forming a relationship with, you know, let's say maybe not necessarily a client, but somebody who may help you in some other more minor sort of way. But the thing is for Godin, he's like, yeah, but you, you guys are like, here's where you're missing out because those things that you're focusing on, right. They're not going to work out. Like if you keep pushing them, it's just, you're literally going to sabotage yourself. Whereas these things that you actually could do and these things that are causing you fear, these are the things that could work out. So it's like by going for one and not the other, you're literally just sabotaging yourself altogether. So um, yeah, so that's why I really love the idea of patience. And I feel like I get stuck in that a lot, where I focus a lot on the things that I can't control, like, you know, view counts or likes or whatever it is, when there are really things that we can control, right? Like reaching out to people, um, let's say, I don't know, maybe even reaching out to people like to build our like platform or website or whatnot. Or just having faith in the process of, you right. know, you just put the work out there and, and you keep you know, having faith. In That's those. true. Right. And even, and even, right. And even just doing the work. Right. But I think a lot of times, like because of comparison, right. Going back to that idea, we get trapped in this notion of like, well, no, the only things that matter are actually the things that like, I can't control, but I'm actually trying to convince myself that I can. So obviously it's very easy to kind of become pushy and to kind of sabotage yourself. So my mother and father went to, uh, went to Cairo uh, last year in October and they were going to be there for, I don't know, not, not quite a month, a couple of weeks, two and a half weeks. 
Mm-hmm. They weren't there a day my mother fell in the street and broke her femur in two places. Yeah. And she had to, you know, get it repaired while they were in Cairo. And happily, the hospital was full of surgeons that did a lot of work with active duty soldiers. And so it was a well done procedure. And then, you know, they eventually had to get back to the US. Right. When I saw her at her house, at their house, and she was, you know, slowly but steadily making the move from a wheelchair to a walker to walking with a cane. The day that she got from the wheelchair to the walker, I said to her, small wins are a big deal. Right. And while that was, I think, an enormous win, you know, when you have been, you know, uh, when you've been rendered uh, all but incapable of looking after yourself tangibly, a small thing like tying your shoelaces or standing up for more than five minutes that having to cry out for, you know, painkiller. That's, that's huge. So that's, I think the notion that small wins are a big deal is relevant for recovery, for starting up a business, for continuing a business, for restarting a business. And one of the unfortunate things about our media and um, all things web and all people that are famous is they can play to what I call the distraction factor. And what they will do is all kinds of noise to keep us from paying attention to what they're supposed to be doing. Also, it distracts us from what we care about and what we wanna do. And there are times when we just have to go with it because we're tired and we're emotionally, intellectually, physically worn out. And so we have to you know, do the um, television or web version of playing Angry Birds or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Seth Godin is a remarkable person. I did his self-publishing course, which I did not apply, but I the re- information was remarkable. And in May, he uh, his email that he sends every day was called Three Paths for a Soloist. And of the three, you guys are the first one, and I think I'm the first one too. Honor the noise in your head. Make the work you believe you were born to make. Create things you can visualize but haven't seen yet. Do it without regard for critics, the market, or the math of it all. It's your handiwork. Mm -hmm. This is an important thing to remember when we are going through metrics, you know, um, how many people looked at what we posted on social, how many responses we get from a press release, how many people showed up for the premiere of something. And to put a tangible measure on what came from our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our philosophies, our belief in clients, our love of artists. Sometimes it needs to be enough that we cared, we kicked ass with it, and we did it. And then we will do the next and the next and the next. And that's the only way I know to do it. I would certainly love for there to be more immediate uh, success mm-hmm. or visual accomplishment with different things in communications. At the same time, my belief in those that made it, you know, allowed me to truth tell, story tell, market, promote. And there, that's, that's a clean perspective. It isn't better. It's clean. 
and it is who I am. So I can stand by what I did and do my best not to look at someone else's thing and see that they had 3000 people at theirs. We only had 17 at ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for the most part, it kind of seems like, like the things that most people gravitate toward are like entertainment related. So that's something I often have to remind myself, like even with our podcast, like it's pretty niche. I mean, even though we cover like mental health broadly, I mean, we mostly talk about like post-traumatic growth or just growth in general in the field. So, um, but I mean, I find that a lot of times when it does come to podcasts, a lot of people just like entertainment, which is cool. It's just, it's not our thing. So I guess for me, from like my blog or show, we have to kind of accept that, look, you're not going to get that many people, but again, going back to Seth Godin, that's fine because you're only really looking to corner like a particular market. So those people that you get, you're not really going to have to change for them. You're not going to have to constantly figure out what they want or how to appeal to them. Like they're going to genuinely like you and be interested in your product for it and for you because you serve a purpose to them. So it's sort of like you're kind of putting your authentic self out there. And then the people who, you know, kind of resonate with it or hear it or feel like they can, you can contribute to their lives. They're the ones who are going to gravitate toward it as opposed to like, let's say just entertainment where, I mean, eventually look, man, most of us can't be entertaining all the time. So eventually we'll run out of things to talk about or like things to, I guess, like entertain people with. I think the notion of, of social trend and finger quotes on purpose is uh, well-intended maybe and ultimately destructive yeah. because with so many magazines and newspapers going, uh, leaning on their digital versus their print with the notion that people will you know, refresh their browser and need to see something new every couple of hours or every 17 minutes. Right. I mean, is the really importance of getting lost? I don't know. Is it getting glossed over? I think so, more often than not. One of the things that I think is missing from the startup or the business, small business owners play, playbook is the reason why it's done, the reasons why it's done and what's applied to make that happen. And part of that is choosing personal over profit, choosing philosophy over profit, choosing support over profit, choosing help over profit. There is nothing sexy about talking about brain injury and coming back from it. It's interesting, maybe. Is it important? <laughs> Hell yes. Yeah. Because my trauma is not necessarily going to be someone else's trauma. At the same time, having to start at zero when you're in your 30s, people know what that is. Whether they were left at the altar, they went bankrupt, they couldn't find a job for seven years, they ended up working for the wrong people because they've been hornswoggled with, you know, impressive sounding stuff. And by no way am I referring to anyone whose name starts with last name starts with T and ends with P. Mm -hmm. Um, But personal over profit, being vulnerable, saying, you know what, we make this and it's awesome because what it can do for you, if you allow it to, what it will taste like, what it will sound like when you let it come into your presence. And we worked hard to make it. This is us at our truest, at our rawest. Is that a word? And we did it for you. And empathy. We know you're in a struggle. We know you're looking for better, for kinder, for happier. 
here's something that helps you be there. Yeah. Period. And you know, it just reminds me of something. Um, so we have Sheldon Solomon on in two weeks. He's the founder of Terror Management Theory. So interestingly enough, when he was, uh, when him and his partners were, um, were pretty much coming up with the concept and they were thinking of turning it into a book. So he said this on the Lex Friedman podcast. He said, you know, we went to the publisher and, you know, we said, hey, well, this is a, pretty much a theory about death and how human beings like manage death. And so the publisher said, well, can you like not mention death at all? Because like people don't really like reading about it. <laughs> he was like, what? The whole fucking idea is literally about how humans manage that. And the publisher is like, yeah, but this is not going to sell. So let's like not talk about that at all, which is like so fucking asinine. I don't know how somebody can even think Wait, to say something like that. Yeah. The woman, okay. The surgeon who wrote about her husband's last months in life mm -hmm. and not Pima Chedron, who wrote that? Um, Oh, I know who you're talking about. Um, Was he an Indian New guy? Times bestseller. Yeah, I think he was an Indian guy, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the name, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that book is about nothing yes. but your last moments in life, and what exists, what you, how you operate, what you present, how you love, how you feel. That's about death. Yeah. I mean, if they were talking about, um, this book is about killing. This book's about murder. This book's about the ways you can do that via poison, via gun, via knife, via any number of other ways, via watching too many Fox News segments, mm -hmm. which will harm you to no end, <laughs> um, unless it's Chris Wallace. Um, sorry. I, it's interesting, speaking only for US because I've lived here the longest, um, People in the US are averse to reading about, hearing about, watching things that sure are difficult. And they are things that when someone's really honest, they could actually or will actually happen in their lives. Yeah. Dying, separating in a relationship, some problem with children. And the only way the war, the United States tends to pay attention to those things is when someone famous is responsible for them, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because the story is the story and the messenger of the story shouldn't necessarily make people want to care. What was, what was, what was Sheldon's and team's reply to the publisher saying that? No. <laughs> yeah. So I don't remember exactly what he said, but they pretty much went with another publisher. <laughs> so they were like, that doesn't make any sense. This is literally the whole theory. Like, why would we want to publish a book on that? It has nothing to do with the, like the core of our idea. Mm. So yeah. here's the editors. We're going to have you do a full rewrite. Then mm -hmm. we'll come back and. Oy, wow. Crazy. Weird meeting. Yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, but then, and then that really speaks to the idea of being entertained. It's like you have people obviously who on one end were like, no, like the reason why we're putting out this theory is because we wanted to help people. We want people to understand like how they manage death terror. And I mean, not to go get into it too much because it's like a whole idea. Um, but the point is like with terror management theory, like people actually tend to manage death in a really fucked up way. And so by him showing that, he's like, no, no, you guys like need to stop doing this. But this is like a natural kind of response to the idea of death. Uh, right. But whatever. But the point is like, 
so he's putting out the idea for people to grow from it and to sort of, you know, kind of heal, I guess, from it. But the editor was like, yeah, but like, this is not going to sell. And when we're talking about bottom lines, I mean, what is this really going to do for us? Why would we want to have a relationship with you if the book isn't going to sell? And for him, he probably said to himself, look, I mean, this is my idea. I mean, it's important for the world to know. If you don't like it, that's cool, because now I'm going to just move on. But it really takes sometimes like somebody like him or somebody like, I always talk about Moneyball and Billy Bean, Brad Pitt's character in Moneyball, right? To say like, no, you guys are all wrong. I'm going to do this my way. And then I'm going to show you in the end that like, you know, you were wrong. Why, so, would, they have, why would they have called for the meeting? If that they, I don't know. I actually don't. That didn't make any sense to me either. I don't know what I, they were I thinking. independently published. My experience with traditional publishing is non-existent. So I can't speak to what was behind that. Um, I mean, what are people scared of? They're scared of loss, yeah. tangible loss, money, the loss of people, the loss of life. Where I am challenged is how people are not interested in learning how they might manage the feelings of loss better. Right. As much as we'd like to think it won't happen, it will happen. Yeah. So how does one prepare for it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I am certainly someone who may prepare too much. And I have a chapter in my book about, Leon, you were talking earlier about uh, finding the clients you really want or the people with whom you really want to work. I learned the hard way how what you think is effusive and making effort is or can be perceived as repulsive. Mm -hmm. And I learned that so many times. Well, at, rather, I, went, I experienced it so many times. I didn't learn it mm -hmm. until the umpteenth time I had offered to do this for someone whose work I thought was great and they just silenced me out. People with whom I had wanted to make friends or I had misread our professional relationship as also being a personal relationship. Yeah. I mean, it happens. And are we are we are we willing to take it as a lesson? Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. But something like managing death, whether it's people we care about or people that we don't know that well. That's one of the most important things to know in life. Right. Fascinating. I think generally like uh, what'll make somebody kind of seek out that kind of information or how to prepare for death, usually if they're going through it or somebody else in their family is going through it. I mean, it's really weird. I mean, uh, I had my own uh, case with this, uh, like when my uh, grandma was uh, dying, she's on her way out. I mean, around that time and then after her death, like, yeah, I would look up different uh, resources like about uh, about death, about, uh, you know, how normal it is. How it's, yeah. you know, it's a natural thing. How like, you know, in American society, it's kind of uh, kind of hidden from us, right? Like the mortician kind of handles it. It's not yeah. something that's like in front of our face all the time. So it's very shocking, like uh, the times that you do experience it. Um, I mean, I think it's something that like people should just naturally kind of want to know about. That's what it, I mean. I feel like that's kind of what we're getting from this part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But uh, I really can't blame people for only being interested in it, I guess, you know, when it comes time to think about it. It's, it's really weird, I, I guess, because we, we no, wanna... not I know, Alan, 1000%. Why would we want to 
ponder and process what is devastatingly sad until it's necessary. Yeah. Uh, a colleague of mine, Megan Devine, she is a grief counselor. She wrote a spectacular book that came out around, around the, a little more minded. It's called, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Mm-hmm. And she has worked for a while on somewhat redefining how we manage grief. And I know for me, I don't think you ever get over the loss of someone you love. You learn to manage it. You learn to wake up every day, go through life. And this is never without the knowledge that the person who you love is not there to share anything with you. And the question is, how do we handle that? And nothing frustrated me more than I, I was a, at a colleague's wake and a colleague, a mutual colleague approached his sister with whom I was speaking and said something like, he's in a better place. It took her aside later privately and I said, look, I know it's hard to know what to say in these things, but you don't say that because you don't know if he's in a better place. Yeah. And his sister certainly does not need to hear that. She got upset, you know, I don't know what to say. And how do you know what to say? And I said, well, I don't know what to say either, but this is what I do say. I can't imagine what you're going through right now. And I'm here for you. When you know what you need, let me know. In the meantime, you're in my thoughts, period. That's all I know to be true. And that's what I say. And it's not graceful. And it's certainly not as cut and dried and easy as saying something like you have the memories. Well, yeah. And anyway. No, it's the hardest thing you can do. Uh, the, the way you're putting it is perfect, right? You don't you don't even know what their beliefs are about death, right? Like if you say they're in a better place, for example, right? I mean, there are perspectives that you could take to death. I agree, like, uh, and that would make sense. But for the person who's experiencing it, right? From, you know, if you're being fully empathetic, you're wondering what they're going through. You really don't know what thoughts are in their head. And in, in that moment when you're trying to console them, it's not appropriate for you to necessarily try to unpack everything at once, right? So you could only say certain things like, I'm there for you, right. you know, whatever you need. Loss, loss of anything, loss of anyone in its immediate aftermath. I don't think anyone, unless they're fully roided up or not complete in their mind, mm-hmm. is able to be okay with it. What's to be okay with? I mean, particularly when someone, you know, when parents lose a child or siblings lose a sibling, really close friends who have become family, one of them is gone. Like there is no getting over this. You forgive, please. I I don't mean to go off. I am, it is a mystery to me though, I mean, I get how people are scared of talking about, you know, all the feels. At the same time, without vulnerability, you guys couldn't do this podcast. You couldn't counsel. I couldn't uh, speak with people. I couldn't have written this book. I couldn't do appearances because this is not, you know, super exciting or sexy or shiny. It's real. It's fact-based. Yeah. And sometimes that's all we need. 
to get to the heart of something. Right. And that's pretty much what I'm pretty sure that publisher missed with uh, with Sheldon's ideas. Like she, I mean, look, look, I I don't know what they were thinking. Obviously, so I can't speak on like what she was thinking. Um, but the point, yeah. But the point is that like why he was successful in his ideas, obviously with his partners, uh, with Tom, and I don't remember the other person's name. Um, so why they were successful is because there actually is a segment of the population that does want to read about it and does want to understand how like the notion of death affects them, especially implicitly, because most of the time we don't want to keep acting in unconscious, destructive ways. So for for him to kind of um, so it was really cool for him to kind of know that and to say like look hey you know we have to come to go to other people because like this is a really important idea that other people are going to want to hear about. I'm grateful that he decided to do it because I mean I think regardless of however people may identify um, spiritually uh, religiously if they find comfort and solace in scripture or in um, uh, familiarity or in tradition. I'm so glad for them. And many people don't have that. Yeah. So what he's going to present, I would imagine, will uh, allow a lot of people both to unpack and unlock a lot of you know, some really deep, deep stuff. Absolutely. And so, Kate, before we wrap up, what would you want our, our audience, I guess, to know most or what would be like the most important thing from you? Oh, sure. Mm. That's fun. <laughs> One of the most interesting things hosts will ever find is asking a loquacious person to break it down to brass tacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a good thing to ask. Um, the most important thing I would like people to come away with from any appearance I make, whether it's something I wrote or something they see me on or hear me on, is they are worth the effort, the time, the risk, and all of the crazy that will be necessary for them to do, make, be what's really core to who they are. They're worth it. They're worth it. Because when they believe that they're worth it, they'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, Alan, final questions before we go? Oh, yeah. Kate, if, if we wanted to follow you, uh, where, where could we follow you on social media? Sure. I am the same handle on all the socials, and that's born of my being a makeup artist and having way too many lip products and anyone should have. So on all the socials, I am Gloss Gal, G-L-O-S-S-G-A-L. And everything about what I do with writing strategy and marketing, the book, the appearances, that's on my website. That's kateharvey.com, K-A-T-E-H-A-R-V as in Victor, I-E.com. And they can see what I'm doing with the Universal Hip Hop Museum on its website, uhhm.org. And I'm honored to be part of the teams at the Vanderbilt Republic and Midheaven Network. Oh, that's so interesting. I actually wanted to ask you about the Universal Hip Hop Museum before we go, what is that? Universal Hip Hop Museum is going to be the global museum for all that is hip hop. It's history, <laughs> it's culture, it's art, it's everything. It's <laughs> pioneers, it's founders, 
its current artists, its impact politically, culturally, socially. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, at the moment, at the Bronx Terminal Market, you can see our exceptional pop-up museum, which is called Revolution of Hip Hop, mm -hmm. bracket R, bracket evolution. Mm -hmm. And that's free. It is remarkable. And Paradise Gray is one of its curators. It is rooted in the history, the truth, the heart of what is as much a movement as it is music. That's so cool. And I am honored to write the interviews and features uh, for the museum. Interesting. And I don't know if you knew, but we're actually on the O4L online network, which is literally founded by one of Tupac's outlaws, Edie I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really cool. I did know that. Yeah. And I, I was gonna, if I, if I, I was, if I, if we came up, if it came up, we talked about Outcast or eight, eight, uh, or anything. I was gonna find a way to say, well, you know, if you guys are in it, you mm -hmm. know, you can head to the Bronx from the market because we're all borough. So, all right. Anyway, no, yeah, yes, so you guys are, all, you guys are for real. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, so for coming on. Okay, so this much. was really awesome. Me too. You guys take all care. Right. Stay safe. All right. Talk to you soon. Cool. Bye. All right. That was awesome. That was really good. Cool. That was awesome. <laughs> all right. So, all right, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on uh, Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Yeah. And you can also find us at the O4L online network at O4Lonlinenetwork.com on top under the STM podcast section. Oh, and speaking of which, next week's guest, Andy O4L. So be on the lookout for that and be on the lookout for a show hard of an outlaw. That's right. And guys, thanks again so much for watching and see you next time.